Welcome to the Liberty Podcast with your host, Pastor Robert Maxey, Senior Pastor of Liberty Church of Baton Rouge. It's our prayer that this podcast will be life-changing for you and that you will share it with someone else. Now, here is Pastor Rob. So I pray that everybody has had an amazing day today. Um, we're going to go ahead and get started with our subject today. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the response to the COVID-19 uh, virus. Somebody has a hot mic right now. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we're going to be talking about the response to the COVID-19 virus. And uh, so this is one of the subjects that's definitely important to me, uh, not only as a black man, but also as a leader in the community, because I want to make sure that everyone is able to get uh, the services that they need, the help that they need. And it's important for us in the community to be able to to uh, help each other. In, in those types of scenarios where there is a disparity in, in the care that's being provided. Now, now just to get get this straight right now, this is not a, a color thing. It's not a color thing. It's not a black and white thing. It's a human being thing. So um, we need to talk about it. We need to talk about how we can do this better, how we can help those that don't have health insurance, those that are are um, uh, have pre-existing conditions that are dealing with it. And, and Next thing we need to discuss is how, as a community, we're able to help those that are in need and how we as the church are able to help those that are in need, no matter what the color is, that we're able to um, help each other and, and to be the hands and feet of Christ. So um, today I have a special guest, uh, candidate for Senate, Antoine Pierce, and I got community organizer, Daniel Bengale. So I want to give you, you amazing guys an opportunity to kind of uh, talk about yourself and, and what you're doing in the community and and, and really how you fit into the grand schemes of things uh, as far as COVID-19 and uh, just how you fit into our community. So, Antoine, would you please share something about yourself? Sure. Uh, like you said, my name is Antoine Pierce. Uh, I'm running for United States Senate. Uh, I am facing Bill Cassidy in this upcoming election. Uh, just a little bit of my background. I started in community organizing. Um, basically teaching civic engagement classes for free, uh, trying to get community out and getting people aware of, of what these elected positions are and what they're responsible for, what they do. Um, and that kind of graduated to uh, working on Sharon Weston Broom, the mayor of East Baton Parish, working on her um, transition team for the Office of Community Development. And then now I'm appointed by Governor John Bell Edwards to his board for juvenile justice and delinquency prevention. Wow. I'm a, a I'm a graduate of, of LSU, big go Tigers to all LSU. Come fans. on. Uh, and uh, I'm getting, I graduated my undergraduate in uh, child and family studies. And uh, in, in next week or so, I'll be graduating again with my master's in public administration with a concentration in public policy from LSU as well. So wow. that's just a quick, a quick uh, run through of my background. That's awesome, man. I'm really excited about what you're doing in the community. And uh, you forgot to tell everybody that you're an actor too. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, come I'm, on, I'm, man. Uh, I'm like the guy in the Dos Equis commercial, uh, but uh, <laughs> most interesting man. No, I, I do. I, I, I'm a classically trained actor. Um, I started in community theater, and I, I'm probably one of the few African American men to actually perform at all three of the local community theaters. And then I started acting professionally, which ended up getting me an agent, and I got a role on NCIS New Orleans. Come uh, on. Yeah, so I've I've done a lot of stuff in that in that field too. The the arts has really uh, translated to my political life. Well, it's helped yeah. me with my public speaking and you know engaging with people and stuff like that. So yeah, um, acting is a is a huge passion of mine. That's awesome. And you're married. How many kids you got? I am not married. Uh, I have one okay. son. Uh, he is uh, 16 years old. And uh, that's it. That's all I have uh, probably for life. Uh, <laughs> we shall see. We shall see. Well, awesome. I'm, I'm really excited about having you on the show today. And and yeah. thank you for, for everything that you do in the community. Thank you. Well, Daniel, please uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm a community uh, organizer here at, in Baton Rouge uh, in the parish. I've uh, just known to one get my people in my community involved in uh in politics it's just a better way of life um i am a graduate of northwest state university and southern uh working on my uh, jewish doctrine where i graduate 
next year. Okay. Um, also, I, uh, I've done a lot of community projects around the community. I've been uh, appointed uh, to a few uh, committees as well. Um, also, I'm on the executive committee of the Democratic Party um, in Louisiana. And so uh, I'm no familiar face to come to politics, especially in Louisiana. Yeah. Um, I've also uh, ran a few campaigns but I was, uh, for judge last year. Um, Okay. Successful, and a few of those individuals getting elected. So it's it's important to get uh, good candidates yeah. on the bench for for judiciary uh, means. And so, just a lot of stuff I you know I do. And just just I'm glad that you invited me to this this podcast. Awesome. You know, one of the things that you do that, that I'm really excited about and really is close to my heart is uh, anti-bullying. Oh yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, anything that brings awareness to issues that involve in our community, of course, I'm a huge supporter of it. That's awesome. So so what I was uh, saying earlier is um, when the virus happened overseas, when we started seeing everything that was going on, I, I was curious to know your thoughts during that beginning stage. Anton, you tell me, what was your thoughts during that beginning stage? I, I think I was a lot like uh, <clears throat> most people, uh, just kind of waiting on more information, unaware of what to expect or what was going to happen. Uh, as a matter of fact, Louisiana, we didn't get our first case until March 9th. So right. there were no, uh, so we knew about, well, I say we, but I, I would say uh, the Trump administration and, and uh, higher level governmental officials knew about this mm-hmm. last year, uh, but we didn't really start paying attention to it until around March when Louisiana started getting our, you know, our first cases, uh, a confirmed cases of COVID-19. So, right. I mean, just like everyone else, we're scrambling for information. I mean, we're still learning things about this yes. and we're still getting information. So um, I, I thought that uh, it was important for people, particularly in our community, to pay attention to the CDC and uh, listening to the experts on these issues to make sure that we prevent the spread. But mm-hmm. in, the, in the early stages, I was extremely concerned that there wasn't enough information being disseminated to the general public to make great decisions about what we should be doing, how we should be practicing social distancing, washing our hands and these types of things to prevent the spread. I I totally agree. And um, when you watched online or you watched the news and you would see like leadership saying, oh, this is something that's overseas, but we're ready for it. Uh, And and the fact that we, we didn't get our first case until March and then we started reacting, it to me, it seems like we were already behind if we're starting on this in March when everyone else had a a, a, a jump on us. Right. Uh, so that, of course, we're going to be far behind the ball uh, with information, but we're also going to be far behind the ball with spreading it because people mm-hmm. didn't know how to avoid the spread or they weren't taking the, the current the measures we're currently taking to prevent the spread because we didn't have enough information about how to not spread it. So now that we have the information, I think the, the, the focus now has to shift to flattening the curve, preventing the right. spread, um, keeping people safe, because we know that this virus is disproportionately affecting African-Americans. As you said in the beginning, it's not a black or white virus people of all you know ethnicities and ages are contracting the virus but it's disproportionately affecting african americans we are disproportionately dying from uh this the coronavirus so we have to now uh, shift our focus now that we have more information about it to prevention and keeping people safe and keeping people alive and i think that's the role of the community organizers that's the role of the church uh that's the role of of the experts and people who have the knowledge to to share it with people in the community so that everyone stays as safe as possible awesome and so daniel uh anton said he says that's the role of the community organizer what yeah, do you hear I agree. When you, yeah. So tell me about what you hear when you hear about the virus and as a community organizer, how do you help the, the community respond? And I'm not just talking about politically, but I'm talking about the individual person in their house. How do they respond to this? Well, you know, I, I, the, the role of an uh, activist, community activist organizer is basically, you know, making sure that you advocate the right information. Um, and like you said before, making sure that people that you have direct influences uh, or someone who 
look to you for uh, leadership, you know, that you're making sure that you give them the correct information. Um, and as uh, Antoine said, you know, at that time, when you saw it uh, across the across the uh, world, you really didn't know how impactful it would be until it reached, until it got here. Um, and I still believe that some people, um, although the spread is here, you know, some people are still uh, not all the way informed of how serious this virus is. That's why you don't yeah. see uh, the curve being flattened as, as, as it needs to be. Um, people are still in denial about that. You know, the yeah. information yeah. about, you know, comparing this to seasonal flu, you know, and that some people can be immune to it. And I don't think it really hits home to people until it hits somebody that they're close to uh, right. or they know. And I, I really believe that it, it gets down to really advocating uh, the severity of this virus. And I don't think yeah. it has already, I don't think it has been project, projected as, as, as where it should be. Um, and I think the governor, you know, and all these individuals who gets on every day to talking about it. Yeah. I don't think they've, really crossed over to individuals who may be carrying the virus who don't know they have it, you know, mm -hmm. asystematic and um, symptomatic, and they just continue to move along, you know, move along, like, you know, it's an everyday uh, part right. of life. And I just think we just need to do more activists and just really sound the alarm for how serious it is. I, I think that's important to do because I, yesterday I walked into Smoothie King and uh, in Smoothie King, there was at least 10 people in there with no mask on and, and and no mask and no gloves on those that were making smoothies no mask no glove and, and those that are standing waiting on smoothies no mask no glove no social distancing or anything like that and the, what bothered me a lot about it was the fact that it was young black men and women that were in all in this in here with no mask and so how do we get the information? Because we established that there is a lack of information um, that's going out. And I feel like we're we're trying to try change that. But there also is a population that don't listen to the news. They don't uh, um, uh, keep up with the internet, on, with the stories on the Internet or anything like that. How do we touch those people, especially the young people that feel like they're invincible? I think you have to take the message to people where they are. Um, like like Daniel was saying, I think we, we see that the governor's having a conference, a press conference every day, a briefing every day. But the reality is a lot of millennials, a lot of Gen Zers, just a lot of people in general are, are apolitical. They're not listening to that per se. Um, a lot of the information that they're getting is coming on social media, it's coming on Twitter, Facebook, what, Instagram, where, whatever medium they use. And they're listening to their peers in a lot of cases or the people that they look up to for the information. And that's why I think it's so important that uh, aside from politics, that community organizers and people that have influence deliver the message in a way that it resonates with with people. But I think, right. first of all, you have to have our leadership take this thing seriously. We have to have our leadership practicing behaviors that that are responsible and that you know lead people in the right directions to keep themselves safe. If if the people that they listen to and look up to don't take this thing seriously and don't have adequate information or are giving incorrect information or, yeah. or exhibiting poor behavior, then that's exactly what the general public is going to do. So right. I think it's important that we take the information to people right where they are and say, hey, this can affect you. You are not invincible. People are dying from this. This is a real thing. It's severe. People, More people will die if we don't uh, take action now to yeah. to stop the spread uh it's important that people articulate that in a way where the, the average person can understand it look this is a this is not the seasonal flu uh right. people are dying at a much higher rate than the seasonal flu uh this is much worse um it, it we're still understanding how it spreads um yeah. and if you live in communities that don't have adequate insurance or don't are not able to see a doctor or or stigmatized getting testing, yeah. then you are more susceptible to catching this this illness. So I think that it's important that we make sure we get adequate information out in a way where people can actually digest and understand it. Right. Uh, Ivana Rhodes, she says that I think as long as it doesn't affect someone close to them, that I that folks won't feel the crisis is severe. Do you yes. believe that? Well, yeah, uh, of course, you know, um, 
that's kind of that's kind of the norm, though. You know, you don't really believe in to touch home anyway. You know, that that's something uh, that we all can agree on collectively is that there's so much stuff that goes on every single day. We don't know everything that goes on in the world until it comes yeah. close to home. And so this this virus is, is nothing different than uh, what we already know to be true anyway. Um, and like I said before, you know, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And, and, yeah. the, and the reason why is because people have to see it to believe it. And until you see it, you know, until you, that's your, your grandmother or that's your mom, you know, uh, you, you're not going to take it as serious. Now, I wish things would be differently, but let's just go yeah. back and let's, let's just talk about our educational system as it is right now. Mm-hmm. Look at where we are right in the country as far as education. You know, right. I believe all this is synonymous with the fact that our education system is so poor, you know, so we have individuals that you're trying to yeah. uh, relate information that don't have basic education. So how can you inform someone who may not even understand the importance of graduating high school to say that right. if you don't stay at home, you know, this virus can can, can uh, harm you. You know, all this stuff is, is like uh, all goes into the same pot. You know, uh, you're yeah. trying to figure it all out at the same time. And it's really very difficult. So um, I think the first thing we could do, first steps is getting everybody on the same page. Right. And that's another challenge, because, as you know, um, and, you know, people, uh, although it sounds Good to say everybody work together. The reality is it's not easy to get people with like minds in the same room who have the ability to uh, influence a great number of individuals. Yeah. Um, and, that, yeah. and, and so that's another challenge in itself. Um, but I do believe that, uh, again, you know, there's so many factors as to why this curve has not uh, factored down to where we would like to see it. And I do believe it's contributed to the 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 lack of uh healthcare providers that we have yeah. uh, or access to them, and people in our community, you know, really don't go to a doctor unless right. there is a life or death situation. Because you know, we can, you know, in our culture, we can basically weather the storm. You know, we get a little cough, we're not gonna go to the doctor right away. We right. we almost gonna wait till you know at the last minute. You know, sometimes yeah. it could be too late. It's it's crazy because the the ones that are really being affected are the ones that still have to go to work. They they don't have the opportunity to work from home. They don't have a job that will will allow them to work at home. So they are going out driving the buses and working in the stores and and doing those things that uh, those that live paycheck to paycheck have to do. And if most of our, our people in our community are living paycheck to paycheck, it's nine times out of 10, they're not going to have insurance. So is right. that a policy failure? And, and is that a failure in our leadership? Or is that a failure in for leaders in the community? Oh, it's absolutely. Uh, it's a, a multifaceted failure. Um, I think it's a failure on all fronts, to be honest. Um, well, well, first, I think that, like you were talking about, people that work paycheck, paycheck to paycheck, they literally cannot afford not to work. So yeah. um, not only do you have your essential people going out, you have people that also try, other than those that have been uh, laid off or, or, or uh, you know, what, furloughed or whatever the case may be, um, those that have lost their jobs, we're talking about people that still have their jobs that are still going out and putting themselves at risk because they yes. literally cannot afford not to work. Right. Uh, so that that's one thing. But why is that the case? So if we look at the the, the extreme wealth uh, disparities that persist in our community, these types of things, that's a policy issue. Yes. Um, when we're talking about where we, where minimum wage is, you know, we haven't seen a minimum wage increase since 2009. Yeah. Um, so that's those are those are policy issues. So we've seen extreme failures and we have a vast, a large majority of, of poor people or, or working poor people that can't afford insurance coverage uh, that that don't that can't meet their adequate. I mean, their basic needs. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that's a policy failure. 
But you also have in our community, particularly in the African-American community, you have a predisposition, uh, mm-hmm. a genetic predisposition to certain diseases like uh, hypertension. Right. Um, you know, these types of things that make you more susceptible to dying from yeah. uh, a disease, a virus like COVID-19. So but that also is connected to a policy failure, because even if you have these illnesses, if you don't have insurance and you cannot go and see a doctor, you won't. So right. these things could go on in your family for for generations without being diagnosed, without getting any type of attention. And even if they are, you can't afford the medication. Right. You can't afford to go and see a doctor. And, and most people in this country, to be honest, couldn't support couldn't uh, afford a surprise medical bill. They couldn't right. uh, afford a, an emergency medical bill. I think there was a statistic that said that the average American could not afford a four hundred dollar uh, medical bill if they were faced yeah. with one. They would have to then choose which basic need they would not uh, get for that month. So, right, these are real issues that are, in my mind, exacerbating the spread of this. And I think it's really shedding a light on our leadership politically, but also our leadership in our community and saying, hey, you guys need to step up and be a voice to this because we can't just let this be swept under a rug because it doesn't affect you. I found that uh, in our in our communities, our our leaders, far as our our pastors and and uh, community organizers and things like that, they've kind of taken a step back. And especially in the church, pastors are used to be leaders when there were certain injustices where where uh, um, the voice needed to be heard. Pastors would step up into the forefront and say, hey, we need to deal with this. But I don't see that anymore. I'm not seeing that where we're, we're taking taking our, our convictions and going out and saying, look, this is not just wrong on a political level, that this is wrong uh, for those of us that are in the body of Christ to also ignore and not pay attention to what's going on. Now, Daniel, I know that you're a, you're a minister, right? Yes, sir. Can you speak on that? Yeah, I wanted I wanted to touch on the last thing you said uh, regarding um, the the policy issue, um, but uh, and I and I, I wanted to say this real briefly is that the coronavirus it really just exposed the weakness of the United States health system, yeah. um, and I believe that uh, America was just was not prepared for a pandemic. Uh, compared to most of the universal health systems that you currently see out there in the world. And if you really look at it, the United States has fewer doctors and uh, hospital beds than any other developed country in, in 19 developed countries in the country, in, the, in yeah. the world. And the fact that we are one of the countries that people see as the, the pillars of, of revolution, we are so underprepared when it comes to health care. You know, yeah. we look at the system divided um, among all citizens we're just completely not on board with with the rest of the world you know right. and this and that's why it has attacked us listen look at italy when we looked at italy at first we said man there's no way you know as many people have died that we would ever catch up we've caught them you know right <laughs> we've right. caught them and passed them up because of the fact that yeah. we have not given and provided healthcare services for every American to be accessible to it. You know, it comes down to the fact that the more is for the rich, the poor and the middle class have to be really struggle to get basic healthcare coverage. And you looking at these, the way the yeah. system set up for healthcare providers, it's not for the poor individuals, you know, unless there's yeah. some type of government subsidiary or some subsidized government uh, like Medicaid, Medicare, what do you have to get quality health care. And, right. and you just you just don't. And then if you are where you work at a certain level, you don't even you don't even make a, you don't even qualify. So therefore you're gonna choose to not what get health care insurance because you can't afford it. You can't you afford, can't it, afford right. it because of the fact that you know you're trying to take care of your house. You can't afford it with the government because you make too much money. So there is a a a pillar of individuals who don't have any health care because they cannot afford it. And, and this so is when the issue this is important because the, uh, those that are in the lower class and in the middle class are the ones that have heart disease, diabetes, kidney disease, and, and are living with pre-existing conditions uh, due to not being able to, to, to buy uh, food that is, that's you know healthy enough and, right. and taking care of themselves. So how do we protect those? I want to talk about two. Uh, go, ahead, go ahead, Daniel. Finish first. Okay. 
Yeah, it, it, it starts at the top. I mean, like I said before, um, you know, we talking about uh, the United States performing, you know, like the worst average among similar large wealthy countries across the United States when it talks about being prepared for a pandemic. You know, this is not the first time we've heard this possibly could be could come to fruition. We've heard this before. Mm-hmm. You know, when we talked about the lead, the previous administration wanted to put uh, money into these type of studies to finding out what we can do to to prevent. I mean, the Spanish flu uh, was was something that we had to deal with before. I mean, there's mm-hmm. so many different things that were similar to what we've had to deal with. So we should have really had enough technology to be able to weather what we currently have right now. Um, and it right. just really goes back to, like I said before, the inefficiencies of our healthcare system. And I think it, it does nothing else. This pandemic should really point to how much money we need to invest into our healthcare. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Anton? Yes, I wanted to uh, address a, a topic that you, you spoke of. You had asked Daniel about it, but I, I like to talk about it too. Um, mm-hmm. You asked about the role of the church. Right. Um, and I think that what we're seeing now, uh, we see hundreds hundreds, uh, perhaps thousands of churches across the state are are bringing their services online using Zoom or Facebook Live or or Instagram or whatever, um, using different uh, mediums to to still keep their congregation engaged and and to still bring, you know, prayer and and, and different things. But we also see a failure on the part of -hmm. some of our pastors to to adhere to wise counsel and to use wisdom to protect their congregations. I think I think yeah. the, the church in general plays such an integral role because people are hurting right now. People are lost. Um, people are are looking for answers. And um, leadership. They're seeing loved ones. Yes, yes, leadership. Yeah. They're they're looking for for hope. And if you can find that anywhere, it's it's in the church. But when you have people that are are that are seeking self aggrandizement, that are seeking mm-hmm. uh, uh, spotlight and, and shine instead of looking out for the best interest of the of the people that that they serve, um, then you it's a recipe for disaster. And I think um, they should be held accountable. And I think there should be a coalition of, of pastors and, and church yeah. leaders to 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 turn the spotlight on these individuals and say what you're doing is wrong. You are right. you are leading people down a path, and you are shedding a very terrible light on the on the real, the true word of God, and the, and 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 what we're supposed to be doing as as responsible leaders. What you're doing is irresponsible. It just right. is. It's no argument about that. So, um, but that's that's one part of it. But getting back to uh, the the policy aspect of it, absolutely, we we have to do more. You you alluded to uh, communities that have food deserts. You know, like North Baton Rouge, for example, right. yes. you know, they, they can't they have to travel 30, 45 minutes um, if they have transportation right. to g- get to buy fresh fruits and vegetables. That that's a failure of policy. Right. Because you see a, a severe uh, disinvestment in communities of color, particularly, but poor communities in general, yeah. um, to, so that they can be able to purchase fresh foods in local grocery stores, uh, a reinvestment of our funds and resources in those communities. So those people can have a place to go to get healthy foods and to right. to, to get understanding and knowledge, to get uh, lessons about how to prepare foods in a healthy way. So. Yeah. These are things that are lacking in the community, and I think that we can do more. And to be clear, it is not 100% the responsibility of the church to do that. Yes, they right. do play a role. I think right. it's everybody's responsibility. It takes a village to raise an adult, too. We so could I never, think- as a church, we could never, as a church, be able to take care of all the poor and all those that are sick. And, and the only way that we can can help is when we start working together. And I don't really find that we can work to we're working together. Um, Elizabeth said, I think everyone is afraid to offend, so no one says anything at all. Well, I think sometimes we have a responsibility to, if if, if telling you the truth and bringing the reality offends you, I'm okay with that. Then yes. so be it. You know, it's it, 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 you, sometimes you have to be, the truth is uncomfortable. Yes, it is. But it's, it's the truth nonetheless. And um, the truth should make you uncomfortable if you're doing the wrong thing or if you, you, you're you lacking knowledge and you're acting on your ignorance, then you should be uncomfortable. You have to be confronted with the truth. Now, when you have the truth and you still choose to do the wrong thing, that's something else. But I think some people just don't have the knowledge. They, they're, they're just operating on their own instinct or on wives' tales or on what they're hearing yeah. from their peers in the community, but they don't 
know the realities. They don't have the truth. Right. So the people that have access to the real information should be doing their very best on, on with with every means that they have to make sure that this information gets out to the general public, but also to hold people accountable, your friends, your neighbors, everybody that, that look to you for information and say, hey, yeah. why are you having this meeting or why are you having this, this communal gathering when you know that this is going on? They might not right. want to hear it, but you have a responsibility to tell to them. say something. So guys, yes. the uh, the call lines are open. You're welcome to call in if you have any questions for these guys. Um, we're talking about uh, the community response to the COVID-19 virus. And I was just reading that 70% of COVID victims are black in Louisiana. 70% yes. of those that died in Louisiana were black. Yes. Yes. Um, shameful. Shameful. Yeah. And again, a lot of it is can be pointed to genetic predisposition to certain yeah. uh, ailments, you know, hypertension, uh, diabetes, uh, these types of things that black people are genetically predisposed to. But that yeah. is that, again, is also a direct correlation to the lack of, of resources, the lack of health care, the lack of, of opportunity in the in the black community, you know, the, the persistence of food deserts and these types of things that only exacerbate these things. If you're right. if you already have a genetic predisposition to this and you're not eating healthy foods, you're not right. exercising, you're, you don't even know you have diabetes. You don't even know right. you have high blood pressure or depression or anxiety and all these other things. Then how are you going to get proper treatment? You won't. Right. Um, not until probably it's too late. So a, a lot of it is, a, is is information warfare, too. You have to dispel all the myths you have to address, you know, because I remember when this thing first came out, people were saying, oh, well, black people are immune. I know everybody yeah, heard that. Definitely. Uh, so now we're, we're dying disproportionately. So that's that's the problem. We have to get ahead of the curve and try to dispel a lot of the myths that come with these things and try to educate people as much as we can. And everybody has a responsibility to do it from the pastor to the community right. organizer to the layperson. Everyone has a responsibility to tell people the truth about this based yeah. on the facts that are presented from the experts. And that means parents as well. Those that are in family members, we need family members to say, hey, don't leave out this house without your mask. Don't leave out this house without without protection, because this is something that is coming home and it's hurting our families it's hurt, and it's hurting our older generation. And, and I feel like in our community, we already lack a um, a number of individuals with wisdom, those in our older our older type of community that are able to pour into our young men and pour into our young women. So to have them also coming uh, uh, under this virus and being killed, it also is detrimental to our community, period. Well, I, I believe I want to add to this, you know, apart yeah. from what you say, a lot of the a lot of issues that uh, that are happening, you know, are the other jobs that are considered essential. You know, yep. we're talking about caregivers, cashiers, sanitation workers, mm -hmm. you know, these farm workers and public transit employees. You know, most of these right. jobs are filled by African-Americans. You know, right. you know, it's very seldom, you know, you know, they're less likely uh, African-Americans employed in people you know, in general places like professionalism and business services that, that actually can transition to teleconferences and, and, and telecommunicating. So that's another area as to what is factoring into a lot of African Americans yeah. uh, being being affected is because of the jobs that they are actually uh, working. You know, yeah. you know, a lot of these tele the telecommunication not African Americans. You know, right. you know, we're, we're we're in the healthcare business. You know, we're caregivers. You know, and right. so you being exposed to that every single time you leave your house. You know. Yeah. Um, the study said about 34% of African Americans use public transit regularly. So yeah. again, that's another, which you're going to stop public transportation services. You know, right. that hadn't stopped, you know, because people have to get to work. So if you are, you are, if you are someone who is considered an essential worker and public transportation is the way you've been getting to work, how right. do you get there without public transportation? You know? And, and so if you look at, a lot of the areas of what's factoring into uh, a lot how African Americans are highly exposed. You have to look at look at also in places many African Americans live. Yeah. You know, you got high concentration areas of New Orleans, high right. concentration in Baton Rouge, and we live you know, on top of each other. And we live in yeah, 
all that's factoring in. It's mm-hmm. not merely just you going outside. It's so many factors as to how African Americans are being exposed at such a high level. You know, also look at a family living living together with a crowded crowded family. You may have right. a house with seven people in the house. You know, this person that went from work, he came home, he exposed seven people in the house. Right, right. You, you know, so it's it's so much stuff that's contributing to to uh to this spread. And also, like he said before, your historical roots. You know, of all these pre-existing conditions, like these these long uh look at look at the the legal segregation in schools and housing discrimination in the labor market. Yeah. You know, look look at all those individuals that are predominantly African Americans. I mean, yeah. it's no idea as to how African Americans are now the high race that's getting exposed the most. Look at all these factors that are contributing. Yeah, from the surface, it looks like we could just say, hey, you guys, stay at home. Right. <laughs> well, what about all the people that are staying at home? They are staying at home. You know, you know, like, for example, you have a family member who's a registered nurse. She has right. a family, five or six at home. She's been exposed at home at, at work. She's and her transmitted mother. to seven people. Yep. It, it ain't just. But see, here's the thing about ignorant folks. We talked about that earlier. You know, from the surface, it looks like these are people simply not following direction. Yeah. Well, if one person get exposed and go to an apartment complex that's full of crowded individuals, yeah. it can infect the entire complex. And it does not necessarily mean that those people was not following the rules. Right. And if you're looking at that and if you're looking at that as a person that lives in a family and basically you're living with people on top of you and you and, and people are at working. And why do why would you take it seriously if you already know that you're going to get it? Or you kind of feel like you're gonna get it? Would you take it seriously? Right. I mean, I think that there's a lot of misinformation too. Um, for example, I, I think people are watching. It, it depends on where they get their source of information. But mm-hmm. we also have to keep in mind that uh, I think it was the CDC that reported. I was watching a uh, doc- Dr. Fauci's press uh, yeah. briefing where he said that you can be two weeks asymptomatic. You don't even know you have it. So you're feeling fine. You're going to work every day, coming back, feeling fine. Uh, you don't you don't you might not even get so much as the sniffles for two or three weeks. Some people yeah. never get any symptoms, but they can affect they can infect people who have lowered immune systems for whatever their reasoning is. And those people will get sick and die and you'll go on with your life and not even know you had it. Or if you do, they're very mild symptoms and, you know, right. these types of things. But also, uh, but going back to my first point, I think that there's a lot of uh, misinformation about it because people yeah. are listening to certain sources. You know, people are hearing all the way up from the president of the United States call it a hoax and say that, right. you know, the numbers are going down, not up, down, not up. You know, he, he's saying that uh, that we can we can inject yourself. You can inject yourself with Lysol and get light inside your body and, yeah. um, you know, drink a cup of bleach and you'll be fine. You know, I mean, just a ton of misinformation out there and people are listening to sources that fit their their thought processes and not really getting the facts and i think that also contributes to the spread but you know there are instances like daniel was talking about where people just can't it's almost unavoidable because they're working in environments that they have potential to be highly exposed to right uh this 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 virus and it's just it's an unavoidable situation. They can take all the precautions they want, and they sh- they're still they're still going to be exposed. Like, look at the doctors and the nurses that are dying at a at a higher rate of numbers. And of yeah. course, they're taking precautions, but they're still dying. So, we have to we have to do everything. We can't fix every situation. We do know the social distancing is working. We know yeah. this for a fact. We can look at the numbers across the country, and we know that it's it's helping to flatten the curve. We know we've seen it work in other countries where they've almost gotten rid of it completely. Um, so we know that's working, but we can take extra precaution, especially people that work in the healthcare industry or work in the service right. industry, um, that to make sure that they're getting tested more frequently, which is another issue is the lack of testing for, for healthy people. Right. Um, so Hold on, Daniel, I think, th- Daniel, I think you need to cut your uh, volume down. I got a, a hot mic. Uh, so those types of things, uh, the, making sure that we have enough tests for every single person. Yeah. Um, that needs to be tested and not just testing people that have currently have symptoms or people that are at high risk. We have so to let's talk about everyone. that. You're right. Let's talk about that. Um, um, Dr. Fawcett said that we need to double our, our 
testing here in the, in the state. So how do we do the testing on a large scale when we can't even get people to go to the doctor on a large scale? You see what I'm saying? So I, I feel yeah. like we're I feel like we're trying to to push a uh, square pin into a round hole. How do we get people to go to testing and where do we test them at? Well, I think we have to almost nudge them in the direction of testing for the lack of better words. And what that means is saying, hey, if you're planning to return to work, you have to be tested. You will need to be tested um, and, and, and not necessarily make the state well, I should say, have the federal government provide the, the funding for the tests, but but make the businesses mandated. So mm -hmm. if you want to return back to your job, you will need to be tested and to make sure that we can uh, track the spread, that we can get adequate numbers on the people that actually uh, exposed and these types of things. I think people aren't if you feel healthy and you feel fine, people are not going to necessarily be inclined to just go and get tested. Right. Um, I think there's a general stigma around it. I think there's a fear of it. And then some people just don't see it as necessary. Hey, I feel fine. Why do I need to get tested? But again, right. you could be asymptomatic. So I think you almost have to nudge people. You have to say, look, this is mandatory. If yeah. you want to return back to work, if you want to go back to jobs that, you know, we need to make sure that you're not. And that isn't a foolproof method because you can be tested and still uh, not you know, not may not exempt, uh, may not uh, show symptoms right then, but then you might catch it. But it, but I guess initially, just as a, a initial step, say, look, we're we're going to start rolling, transitioning back to work because I know that's a huge push across the country to get the economy back rolling. If you yeah. want to return back to work, then you'll need to visit a testing site and be tested to see if you have the the uh, coronavirus. Um, and if you don't. Then we'll say, okay, you 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 here's your paperwork. You've been tested. It's okay for you to return back to work. Otherwise, right. I think we have to say, well, at minimum, wait until the curve has been flattened enough to where, you know, the CDC and the World Healthcare Organization say we can maintain it, even if a small part portion of the population still has it. We can maintain it and get treatment for those people so that it doesn't spread and become uh, much worse than it currently is. Right. Uh, so there is a big push for uh, the state to go back to work in the country, period. And the president said many times that the United States is not not built to be shut down. And so I know that we are we've done uh, giving people money and he put his name on the checks and everything. But um, is that going to be helpful for us, especially as we're moving into the winter months? And Dr. Fossey says that we're going to be dealing with two diseases at the same time. We're going to be dealing with the flu and we're going to be dealing with uh, COVID-19. And both of them look alike. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a scary thought. It's a scary thought um, because most people will assume that they have it's flu season. Most people mm -hmm. will assume mm -hmm. they have the flu. Now, I think a bigger issue is, is also Who's going to pay for the testing if, if mm -hmm. the federal government makes the testing available? Because a lot of these states don't have the funds. I mean, uh, they just don't have the funds to purchase these tests on a large scale. So the federal government implementing in their neck in their upcoming packages. I know they're, they're discussing right now in Congress. Uh, well, I guess when they come back on May 4th, but they're, they're discussing right now a, a, a fourth stimulus package that's yeah. supposed to cover uh, additional testing so that we can get this on a larger scale, which I hope will be the primary focus of that package and not necessarily enriching these uh, right. corporations. But now, um, the president, the president said that he wanted the states to, to pay for testing uh, and, and that the federal government will be a last case scenario. Well, how, how are they going to do? I, he didn't explain how exactly that was going to happen. Um, I, I think that it's a, it's a, scapegoat you're scapegoating the states and saying it's not the federal government's responsibility but it is um at the end of the day they're their the cornerstone of their mission is to uh promote the general you know the, to to basically provide for the health care of, of of the country it is the federal government's responsibility to provide ppe and to provide uh tests and these types of things right. the states don't have the resources to do that um i mean where's the money going to come from um, and, and let's be clear, this isn't the federal government's money. 
<laughs> you know, they get they they collect taxes from the, the each individual to run the government. So it's the state's money, right? You could put your name on that. Is collecting. You could have put your name on that check. Oh, and I could have put your name on it, and <laughs> right. I would still. You could sign it, and I cash it because <laughs> you know. But at the end of the day. It's everyone's money. This is taxpayer right. dollars. This doesn't belong to the president or the Congress or anyone. So they should be making every uh, move. Uh, they should be doing everything in their power to make sure that this is a move that we're taking. There's no need to put money to the side for anything. This is yeah. what's at hand. We need to be putting all our resources into protecting people from this from this virus. Daniel, uh, when we were talking about testing, uh, my thoughts were... How do the community organizers, how do the pastors, how do those that are leaders in the community um, help organize or be a part of getting people to testing sites? Well, uh, the the biggest assembly area is the church. Um, when you're talking about the organizers of people, uh, you, you get that every Sunday morning. You know, that's probably why you see a, a flux of politicians go through on Sundays, because that's how many people are there at one time. So the church has a role um, to play in this part in, in getting those individuals at their church tested, even if it's on Sunday mornings. You know, we can think outside of the box where we're talking about a day throughout the week. If you got them all there on Sunday, just test them all, test them while they're there. Yeah. You know, I think the problem is we're trying to try to figure out things where sometimes simplicity is the best answer. You know, I mean, those individuals that have already recovered, you know, trying to find out if in their plasma there's antibodies that's going to be able to yeah. counteract the, the, the virus. You know, the bottom line is, you know, just because we do a widespread of testing does not necessarily mean that you won't get uh, some misdiagnosis because COVID-19 may be a symptom in your body, but you could misdiagnose that for another coronavirus, another type mm -hmm. of, of virus that may be present. You know, like you said, the seasonal flu is coming about. So you you may you may actually get a few misdiagnoses with individuals yeah. with a large spread of testing. I mean, it has to really be strategic. You know, I believe once there are uh, studies that come out and there's more information and science to come out to maybe counteract this this, this COVID nineteen. You know, getting churches involved. You know, getting pastors to to get their their flock to you know take the test. You know. While they're at church, you know, just like you give communion on Sunday, you just get yeah. your COVID-19 down the, down the road. Say, hey, y'all, I know, you know, this is untraditional what we do here, in, 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 you know, on a Sunday morning. Yeah. But, you know, but also our, you know, our job as pastors, not just to 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 pray with you and for you. You know, we want to make sure you while you're here on earth is, you know, do our part, making sure you are right. safe. You, you know, you are, you know, you know, with the best health you possibly can be and give the best information. You know, um, now here's the issue. The challenging issue is, you know, um, I can't speak for every pastor in the world that that has that agenda to to care about their flock to the point where they're willing to to do and, and take on this challenge. Um, but I believe pastors can start there once they get the proper instructions um, on how to be able to test individuals that are in their church. Look at some of these mega churches. Yeah. And that, that is, you know, you talk about churches that have 30,000 members. Right. So can you imagine those churches getting everyone, you know, getting 75, 80 percent of their church to test? Then, wow. you know, then, man. But like you said, Antoine said, it, it, it's trying to find out the money that it's going to pay for. But obviously there's money because, you know, the government, you know, print money every day. You know, um, we found, you know, money for the, the Bell out of East corporations. I'm sure we're gonna find money in, in the budget to to, uh, to get these tests in online. So I, I just think that the churches can really play a major part with the, the assembly. Right, and without that testing, you know, we're gonna look we're gonna look to overrun our hospitals and and our, and our medical mm -hmm. staff are gonna. I, I just watched on the news today that um, a doctor committed suicide this morning. Yeah, yeah. and and that's. That's huge. And this was a doctor that was on the front line, a doctor that also um, contracted COVID-19 while she was helping people, got healthy and then went back to to um, to serving again. And then wake up one morning, you find out that she committed suicide. It's horrible. 
Now, you know, that's uh, another issue is the uh, the social effects, you know, the mental effects. So just because you, you know, there's another issue in our mental health profession that we're going to have to start looking mm-hmm. into and, and providing resources for, you know, some of those. Because this is a mentally uh, uh, devastating situation. Yes. It causes trauma on the on the mental fortitude. So, I mean, just because you heal don't mean you mentally like you just gave the example of the woman who committed suicide. There are people who are taking drastic measures because, A, they can't go to work. They, they combine in a space. Um, and and it, it can it can mess with your mental mental mind frame. And, you know, and, and so I see I know I know you heard I heard I heard you say that there's some stats that says, you know, I believe the healthcare care is already bombarded with because yeah. we don't have the capacity first to even deal with the number of people that are that are uh, uh, are sick. That's why we're turning them away. If they right. don't meet a certain measurement of of symptoms, they don't even treat them because typically the only thing you can get really if you do have COVID-19 is a ventilator. ventilator you know, right. I mean, you don't even there's nothing to properly treat you. So all they can do really, unless you just a, a, a severe case is to. Is to, is to put you on a ventilated system and, and hope that you can get out of it, you know, the best way your body will allow you to, because there's nothing really in stone to get you to the next, you know, to get you out of that situation. So I don't think that our, our workers, I don't think that our uh, medical professionals and those that are on the front line are equipped to to watch the amount of death that they're having to experience on a daily basis. So we also need to make sure that, like you said, Daniel, to have uh, 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 some funds set aside to maybe do something like uh, we do with our military, the PTSD and things like that, to uh, make sure that they get the help that they need when this is over and that, or as this goes on, to making sure that they're able to to still be there with for their families and to get them healthy enough to stay on the front line. We can't have uh, our doctors and our nurses and our CNAs and those that even just mop the floor um, falling out from depression and, and stress-related illnesses. Yeah, uh, I agree. I, I think in, in this case, we didn't have an entrance strategy. So it's very mm-hmm. difficult to even begin to talk about an exit strategy. Wow. Uh, but I, I, I think right now we have to be thinking about an exit strategy, especially with the, the heightened political push to get people back to work so quickly yeah. without a vaccine in place, without adequate testing in place, without knowledge about how this thing is still spreading. Uh, I mean, I think there are just so many unknowns and we're in just such a rush listening to people that, in my opinion, really couldn't care less about the lives of other people. Um, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're more concerned about their own livelihood and, and the profits of, of, of businesses before they are concerned about the, 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 the lives of of everyday people. I think uh, at this point, we have to be thinking about how we're going to treat the, the caregivers, how we're going to treat the doctors, because PTSD is a real thing. It's a part of my my education. Uh, uh, it, it is a, a real thing that we're still learning about, how it affects people, because a lot of times you hear PTSD and you think about it in terms of people that have served in the military, but oh, it's it's so much it goes so farther, so much farther beyond that. People that have lived in stressful environments or lived stressful lives or have been exposed to heightened amounts of stress that we see coming about as a, as a result of the COVID nineteen. People seeing deaths of their family members and others. I mean, the the media I think is contributing to it on the de- I mean the twenty four yes. hour news cycle of hours. death and destruction and devastation. Um, I think that is is contributing to a, a heightened amount of PTSD across this country. And I think it's important that we begin to talk about how now, again, this is a policy issue because if you are, first of all, uh, mental health is a stigmatized issue in the mm-hmm. African-American community, but but in all communities. Right. So getting people to see a therapist or a psychiatrist or a counselor is very difficult in some cases. So, but also how are they going to pay for it? Right. So, yes, people need mental health uh, treatment. And so if you can first convince them to go now, you also have to figure out, OK, how am I going to pay this psychiatrist if I don't have insurance or if it's not covered under Medicaid, if I have Medicaid or Medicare, if I have Medicare, then how, you know, and these psychiatrists are charging by the hour, you know, unless you find a, 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 a nonprofit organization, which I'm sure will be overran. 
Um, So how we how are we going to address these issues? Because people may be living with these things for a long time. But I think that's also a place where the church can be instrumental Um, because a lot of it is a very spiritual thing. Um, It's extremely spiritual. And I think you you know, that's a role that the the church can play um, in in feeding people at minimum in that way uh, uh, on in a spiritual sense, offering them. Uh, prayer, but also offering them spiritual guidance and spiritual counseling as to how they can cope with this until they can get the actual uh, physical help, um, the natural help from from doctors. They, we can, you know, at least give you some comfort in this so that you don't implode until you can get to a point where you can see a doctor and actually get some medication and things like that. Here's a way that you can cope with these things on a spiritual level, and now you can at least hold you over until you can go and see a doctor. But I think the church can play a key role in that. And I I think it's going to take, it can't be just one church or two churches. It's got to be a coalition of churches saying, Hey, we're going to offer this. My, our door, after we figured out this coronavirus, I should say our doors are open so that people are, we utilize our, our social media platform so that people can hear something comforting and people can know that we're going to get through this together and we're going to pray together and we're going to comfort each other through this. So yeah, the church plays a, a, an extremely instrumental role in, in, in making sure that people are aware and are comfortable until, you know, we, we figure out a, a, a natural exit strategy. That's really good. Really good. And great point. The church has to be involved. And I I want to be on on uh, record for saying that myself and my wife, we're available for anyone that needs counseling or, or anyone that uh, needs just a, a ear. Uh, we do a lot of counseling in our church. So I want to make sure that that people have the opportunity and, and I want to be able to help other pastors also uh, have the skills to to be able to counsel them until they're able to meet with a psychologist or psychiatrist or social worker. So um, as we're getting ready to close, I wanted to say, Daniel, share with with everybody how they can hear more about you and what you're doing and how you as a community organizer are going to champion this subject for for people going forward. Oh, wow. Thank you. Um, Well, again, to hear more about me, uh, just visit DanielBanger.com. Uh, also, uh, I have a publication, Pinpoint News, where uh, I actually uh, may write editorials about certain things that are impacting the community. Um, and so, again, I'm on social media, Facebook, Instagram, uh, things like that. And I think the first thing, again, you know, uh, is is just keeping the conversation going. Um, last week, I was able to uh, do a Zoom call with, uh, with a few doctors regarding uh, COVID-19, you know, and stuff like that, just doing your part to try to, in fact, impact as many people as you can. And hopefully that passes the torch on to others who can impact, you know, their uh, individuals that they uh, have influence over. And again, just doing your part at home. Um, and, and so I think we all collectively do that. I think we can flatten that curve, you know, just basically doing our own part individually and then collectively, you know, um, just using that same message and just trying to influence those who may not be accessible to technology um, and all those great things. So uh, thank you for, for having me on. And um, again, uh, you can just visit more about me at DanielBangel.com. Awesome. Thank you, Daniel. And uh, Antonin, tell us uh, when's the election and uh, when you're elected, what will be the, the policy that you're going to champion? Uh, what, are, what do you see your goals as uh, going forward? Okay, the I'm of course I'm running for United States Senate. Uh, the election is this coming election is uh, November third. Uh, that will be of course the presidential election as well. So uh, I'll be on this upcoming ballot this November, and uh, when I'm elected, of course I'll be championing championing uh, health care for every single American in this country. Uh, not just access, but health care coverage. We have access to a million dollars, but we don't have it. I'm right. championing health care coverage for every single American in this country to make sure that people uh, and also uh, paid family leave. That's a big deal. Uh, yeah. Making sure that people, if they have to take off because they are sick or because they need to take care of a loved one or because they have a child, that they won't have to question how they obtain their basic needs while they're off. But making sure that they have.
paid leave while they're off. Yeah. Uh, that's going to be a major issue. So a lot of the things that this this virus is exposing about our country is going to be things that I'm going to be champion. Of course, raising the minimum wage so that people can afford health care right, right, on their right. own. Um, you know, people are concerned about how uh, the government is going to be able to afford to pay for, you know, health care for everyone. Well, if you pay people a living wage, they'll take care of themselves. Uh, but I think we have to to give them the boots if we want them to pull themselves up by them. Yeah. So uh, my my goal is going to be giving people boots and making sure that they have boots that fit. Uh, so. That's what I'm planning to do. Uh, the, champion health care for, for every single American, championing yeah. paid family leave, championing raising the minimum wage and, uh, you know, these types of issues that affect every single everyday American. So that's that's going to be my goal. Awesome. Awesome. I want to thank both of you guys for coming on again. I really, really appreciate it. I, you guys brought so much to the table tonight. And I, I am going to be praying for both of you as you go forward, working in our community. And again, I want to just say thank you for everything that you both do in our community. Thank you. Thank, thank you for you. having me. So, guys, thank you, uh, everybody that was able to tune in tonight. Uh, this uh, podcast will be available tomorrow uh, for you to download and you should and for you to share. Please, please, please uh, follow us uh, on Podbeam. And as you as we go forward, I want to make sure that you all are connected to what we're going to be talking about. We're always dealing with important issues in our community. On Thursday nights, we we do our marriage group here on uh, Podbean as well. So I love you guys. Thank you all and have an amazing night. God bless.